Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. June 2022 will mark the 53rd anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, which sparked the gay liberation movement, eventually giving us Pride Month and all the parades and events that go with it. In Canada, Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver have some of the largest Pride celebrations in the world. But what does Pride look like in small towns? I think the average person, when they think of Pride, you know, they might imagine huge floats and millions of people and big skyscrapers and big cities. But, you know, Pride can also look like little kids running around with with bubbles <laughs> and, uh, you know, older folks in our community m- marching alongside us. Shell Turingen is the co-director, producer and editor of the documentary Small Town Pride. It's now available on CBC Gem. They join us today to talk about their experience making the documentary in three small towns in Alberta, the Northwest Territories and Nova Scotia. This is The Decibel. Shell, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I know that you're from the Toronto area. And so I'm wondering, how did you get interested in in small town queer communities in the first place? Of course, um, my partner of 13 years, uh, she actually grew up in a small town called Smith Falls. It's about an hour outside of Ottawa. It has a population of about 9,000 people. So similar in size to uh, Tabor, Alberta, which you'll see in the film. And in 2018, Smith Falls celebrated its first uh, Pride event. Hmm. It was maybe 50 people that walked down their main street with rainbow flags, took about 15 or 20 minutes, and that was it. My partner's mother was there supporting, and I remember looking over uh, at my partner, and she was almost in tears, and I said, honey, are you okay? And she looked at me and said, and I'll never forget, I never thought I'd see this happen in my hometown. Wow. And that really, you know, that really hit me being from a bigger urban center and having access to resources. Like it didn't occur to me that like so many other people did not have that access. And so really that is how small town pride came to be. I like to call it my love letter to queer folks who have grown up in small towns, who live in small towns now and who maybe want to live in small towns mm-hmm. later on in their lives. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people, especially people like me, who's you know from a from a big city, we we think of pride as a, a big city thing, and then there's this also this conception that rural areas are a little more hostile to queer communities. What did you find in the in the small towns that you visited? I think for the most part, when we were there, like we were not experiencing that hostility, but you know we were only there, you know, maybe seven to ten days. You know, the stories that we were hearing from from the folks that you see in the film is that, you know, they, they're experiencing that hostility all year round. It, it's easy to say, okay, that camera crew or those big city slickers are going to come in and out and then leave. Um, but these folks, you know, they don't have a choice in many cases. You know, they have to stay. These are the places where they live and work um, and love and thrive. And so, you know, while we didn't experience that, they certainly do. Hmm. Yeah, we have uh, we don't have numbers from Canada, but in the U.S., nearly 70 percent of, of youth living in, in rural communities said that their their towns were, were somewhat or, or very unaccepting of LGBTQ plus people. Uh, and that's according to a survey done by the Trevor Project, an organization. Does does that kind of 
sound like it tracks in Canada from from what you're hearing um, from people in, in these small towns? I mean, yeah, I, that doesn't shock me. That doesn't surprise me at all. You know, I think, you know, small towns sometimes tend to be like a little bit behind. Their fashion might be, you know, a little bit older. Their music might be from a decade ago. And the same is true of their activism. Um, you know, it just comes a bit slower. And so it's just very interesting to see these small town prides happen now, you know, and 2019 is when we did the production year and a lot of these places were having their prides for the first um, time. And it just, it reminds me of the early days of Pride in bigger cities. Like, um, and you'll see in the film too, there's archival footage of Toronto Pride from 1985. And it doesn't look that far off from uh, the, the prides that you see in the film. And so those stats that you rattled off, like that doesn't shock me at all. But I think that the folks in these communities are, are trying really hard to, to make their places safer places to live. Uh, let's focus in on the town of, of Norman Wells, Northwest Territories, which which you, you follow in the doc. And I think a lot of people probably don't know much about this place. It's a pretty small community. Why, why did you want to go there? So Norman Wells uh, is up in uh, the Northwest Territories. It's about 800 people. Uh, there's their population. And uh, it's extremely remote and rural. The only way to get in and out of town in the summer is to fly. But the thing that we found really fascinating about the story in Norman Wells is that their pride events are actually organized by their school's GSA, their Gender and Sexuality Alliance. And the pride events are really focused around around the school and the students. Um, and so they have a pride week in which, uh, which starts like in September at the beginning of their school year, which I think is also really interesting. Like they find it as a really nice way to like to start their their school year fresh with like inclusivity and acceptance. So not in June when we think of Pride Month, they're actually doing it a different time of year. So it sets up their school year properly then. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And like their events are very cute. Like uh, one of the events is like a movie night in Sarah Kelly's classroom. She's a teacher there at the school, right, Sarah? Yes, yeah, Sarah Kelly is the um, is the teacher at the school that actually helps run the GSA there. And like a, one of the other events is like a a coffee and tea night, which is actually just a parent info night where they can come in and pick up pamphlets and maybe learn a little bit more about the LGBTQ community. Like perhaps one of their kids have come out to them and they just they, they need access to resources. Right. Uh, and then, of course, on their last day, they have their parade where, you know, uh, as many students from from school join together at, at the end of the school day and, and they just they march around town. And it looks like the kids are marching to like, there's no, there's no one else around. It's just them. And in many cases, when you think of pride, like, you know, there's, there's hundreds of people on the sidelines waiting to see. And to me, it was like, they're marching for themselves. Yeah. So those kids are just, they're very young. They're 15, 16 years old. And I certainly uh, didn't have that sort of tenacity (laughs) Um, when I was that age. uh, I certainly didn't have access to GSAs. I also went to a Catholic school in the mid nineties when I was closeted, like I couldn't have imagined even seeing these things happen. And so um, like, that's what really struck us with Norman Wells and why we felt we needed to go there. Yeah. I want to talk about Sarah Kelly, the the teacher in Norman Wells again for another minute. Uh, Let's actually hear a clip from her uh, from this documentary. So this is the front lines of pride. What does pride look like? Well, I apply for funding, I get a grant and then I go grocery shopping well, let's roll. And 
And I'm going to go right to the Halloween candy. So she's literally going to the store, buying candy for this Pride Parade. Can, can you give us a sense of how, how does this Pride Parade really come together in a town like this? I mean, honestly, um, and, and I think this is a, 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 one of the themes in the film of, of allyship. Like Sarah Kelly, as the kids say in the film, is straight, you know, but she explains in the film that she went to teacher's college in Toronto. And as early as 2011, you know, she was speaking up against like the Halton Catholic School Board for banning GSAs. You know, I think Sarah Kelly is such a a shining example of allyship. She's she's using her power and privilege in that very remote place to help these kids. Because as she says, like, while pride is very cute, these are life-saving measures, you know, creating safe spaces for children allows them to reach their full potential. And these kids, like, they just, they adore her. They love her because she's helped to create this space for them. I want to play another clip. Uh, let's hear from Ava, who's actually a student of, of Sarah's at that school. Sexuality and Indigenous people aren't things that people talk about in the same settings. Both of them aren't things that people talk about a lot anyway. So it's kind of been hard not seeing other Indigenous people coming out and talking about it. I think it would be cool to be able to be one of those people for others to see and be like, oh, that's, that's cool, I could do that too. I notice from from the doc, and I, I think this is kind of an understood thing too. A lot of people um, in in small towns are white, and a lot of people even organizing these small town pride events are white. So I guess, how do you see people who aren't white celebrate and and, and engage in this way? Oh, that's a really excellent question, and I think you know inherently these like queer organizations, you know, they make it clear that like obviously they're trying to make safe places for themselves as, as members of the queer community. But, you know, because they're part of a marginalized group, you know, they want to welcome everyone who's mar- marginalized. Like, I think it's like, you know, if you're being discriminated against because of your race or your religion or your or your sexual identity or your gender identity or whatever it is, they want to impress on people that, like, the GSA, uh, you know, the Tabor Equality Alliance, the Pride event in Annapolis, like, these are really spaces where... Everyone can feel safe. Whatever your otherness is, those queer organizations will open the doors to you. Um, and I think for for Ava in particular, you know, and she's up north too, where there tend to be more indigenous communities. And I just think it's so sweet and inspiring that she wants to be like a beacon for, for kids. Um, and it allows other people to look at them and say, oh, I can see this other kid doing that. I can do that too. I think those kids are very proud that, um, you know, the fact that their GSA existed allowed other GSAs and schools around them to exist. It's helping students all around their community now and in the future. All the kids that come in after them now have that GSA. What an incredible impact, right, that will last for years and years. They even say in the documentary they used to be the northernmost GSA in Canada, and now there isn't, there's one that's further north. So this is really kind yes. of growing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're extremely proud of that. That was a title they were happy to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> During Pride Month in a, in a big city like Toronto or Ottawa, there's there's a lot of pride flags around. You you see them you see them everywhere, but that's not the case everywhere in Canada, um, as as we see in in, in this documentary. Uh, what is the significance for you, Shell, of of seeing the rainbow flag in in a small town? Um, I think 
And I've certainly felt this from my queer friends in the big city, you know, sometimes that rainbow flag uh, has come to mean something else to us. Uh, you know, like city queers can feel a little bit jaded about the flag because, uh, you know, we feel like the corporatization of pride, pride can sometimes feel like it's been co-opted by corporations and companies that are just trying to sell their wares to us uh, and who don't live this speak and, and, and don't support us all year round. Um, but in these places, you know, that flag is extremely important because they're signifiers of safety. Um, you know, when people see that flag in a in a storefront or in somebody's on somebody's front lawn or in their window, they immediately know that's a safe space. And I certainly um, can relate to that. I know that when I travel all around the world in cities I've never been in, big or small, I'm looking for that rainbow. <laughs> I'm looking for that flag um, just because it's this like unspoken understanding that like when you see that symbol, you are safe. I was shocked because something happened to me last week and where somebody burned the rainbow flag that was hanging off the back of my bicycle. I had parked it on Jarvis, which is just a street over from church, uh, which is Toronto's queer village. And it was uh, last week, like a week before, you know, Pride weekend. And I live in Toronto. <laughs> uh, and it immediately made me think of the folks in Tabor who experienced that with their flag when they were trying to do their flag raising. And so as progressive as a lot of us would like to think that we are in bigger cities, we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. I'm sorry that happened to you. Um, and it, it's, it's, it does really illustrate that point, though, very clearly, as you say. Uh, you, you mentioned Tabor's flag. What, what happened to their pride flag? Um, so the, uh, I believe the, f- the first year they put up their flag, they had requested to have it put up at town hall. Their city council voted against it. One of the councillors petitioned to have it put up at a flag post that was just behind town hall in Confederation Park. They did their flag raising and within about a week's time, uh, someone had stolen the flag. So then they did another flag raising and uh, somebody had defaced it and, and, and lit it on fire, basically. So then the following year, when they petitioned to have it put up again, uh, the town council was like, absolutely not. And so the province had to step in and say, hey, you can use the provincial building across the street and use those flagpoles instead. You know, it was heartbreaking for them to see that happen, not once, not twice, but like three times to their flag. But, you know, they didn't let that stop them from continuing to replace it. You know, week after week, even though people were burning it, ripping it down, uh, you know, tossing it aside, you know, it was it was upsetting for sure. But they were like, no, well, we're going to put up another one. And I think that was extremely brave of them to do. I, I want to play a clip from uh, from Jace, who's uh, in, in Tabor, Alberta. Let's listen to, to this this part of the film. Tabor needs strong advocates here to advocate for the queer community, to advocate for some of the other marginalized communities here. That's why I'm here, that's why I stay, is because if I don't stand stand up and do this work, who else is? With this kind of work happening, do, do you see or do you hear about these small towns maybe changing to become safer, more open for people? Yeah, for sure. So we did do a brief interview with the mayor of Tabor, who spoke to the Pride events a little bit and um, his attendance and kind of the feeling of town council in general. I, I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, people have feelings about the mayor, which were picked up in the screening. And Jace was able to give us some context that after the film came out, 
um, the following year, like the mayor went out of his way to to congratulate them on their on their pride celebration. Um, you know, him and certain town council members attended like workshops to learn about you know, LGBTQ terms and like, you know, what, you know, what does this mean? What, what do all those letters stand for? And seemed to be making a real effort to educate himself. And, you know, for those folks, tolerance is such a huge win for them. You know, that's a small step in the right direction. And so as adversary as, as that mayor has been to them, you know, seeing him come out uh, to those events and really try and make an effort. Um, I think that meant a lot to them. Yeah, that's amazing to to hear that. You know, there are some small changes here that actually, hopefully, down the road are going to turn into something uh, to a big difference here. Before I let you go, Shell, I I want to ask you, what do you think big cities can can learn from small towns when when it comes to to pride and, and its celebration? For sure, obviously, pride is a ce- celebration. We don't want to ignore all of the advances that we've made, um, and we should be. Uh, happy and celebrate those things. But let's not ever forget that pride is a protest. It started as a protest. It continues to be a protest alongside of our celebration because we still have so much to do. What I hope these bigger city events can take away from the film is like, you know, perhaps there can be opportunities in programming where we can create more intimate events for people to really connect and and discuss and and talk in a way that feels a little more a little more intimate than just you know millions of people at the parade and to remember where we started our humble beginnings that you know here in the big city we might have millions of people at pride um but that not so long ago you know toronto started very small and so like let's not forget our our global queer community um in, in cities big and small and and really do what we can to to support them. Shell, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Michal Stein helped edit this episode. Our summer producer is Zara Kozema. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.